Merry Christmas, everyone. I think this is my favorite service of the year. There's something about how intimate and cozy it is to be together uh, singing songs of praise to our Savior and then listening and thinking through His Word together. Um, this, this evening, as Isaiah was reading, he read to you the, the narrative that Luke gives about how Joseph and Mary had to travel to Bethlehem and how there was no room for them in the end and, and then how the baby was delivered in a manger. And as, as this was taking place, the next set of verses begin to share how God did not want that event of the birth of His Son to go unnoticed, so He had given the angels the, the, the assignment to come and bring the message that this birth was the birth of the Savior. And one of the fascinating things that, that the narrative tells us is that the shepherds came and they told the whole town of Bethlehem about this amazing experience they had had with the angels and how the angels had interpreted the reality of Christ's birth. And the, the town got so excited about this amazing birth and this amazing thing, and it said they were all just filled with wonder and amazement, and then they went home and acted like it never happened. But there was one whose life was utterly and completely changed, and that one was Mary. And it said that Mary, you know, who had already had a visitation from the angels to explain what was going on, but Mary, after the birth, was given this word from the Lord about that child. And the scripture says that Mary didn't just feel amazement. It says she treasured this in her heart, which is a biblical way of saying she recorded it. She memorized it. She memorized how she felt. She memorized what she saw. She memorized what it meant. And then it says she pondered it. So for all the years until she spoke this narrative to Dr. Luke, who wrote it down. For all those years, as she went through trials and troubles, as life went differently than she expected to go, when her own son was crucified on a cross and, and all of these things took place, it means that she brought out this message. She brought out this, this word of salvation from the Lord, and she interpreted all the events of her life through this truth. Now, what we find is that God is always speaking. God is always interpreting. God is always giving you the truth. But we're not always listening. Sometimes we're like the people in Bethlehem. We get excited, but we go right back to our old default settings and our old ways, as if nothing had happened. But only Mary really gets that this truth that she had experienced was ultimate to her. It became her life. Now, this has been a problem with the message of salvation. This has been a problem with the message of God to his people forever. One of my favorite things is to go back into the Old Testament, like we read a little while ago, go back into the Old Testament and see all the, the times that Jesus was foretold by the prophets. One of the great passages that foretells of Jesus the Messiah and who he was and what he would do is, is the passage in Isaiah 49. And in Isaiah 49, he's, he's, he's declared to be the light to the Gentiles. 
and the glory of his people. Let me, let me show you a little bit about what the Lord said to his people. He said, now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant, I'm the one to bring Jacob back to the Lord. And that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant just to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So in this passage, in this foretelling, you need to know a little bit about the context of when God spoke this to his people. The prophet is Isaiah. It's at a time when both Isaiah and Jeremiah had been prophesying to the people. But nobody wants to hear what they have to say because what they're saying is you've turned from the Lord. You're living your own lives as if the Lord doesn't matter. You've become religious, but you're no longer in relationship. And they're speaking these truths to the people. And the people say, we don't want to hear this. We want to, you're just bad news. We just want to hear the good news. And so the Isaiah preaches and they don't listen. Jeremiah preaches and they don't listen until in chapter 49, in Isaiah 49, something changes. See, these people who had not listened have now been taken into captivity by a stronger kingdom. They've been taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Now they're crying out with all their voices, save us! Save us. You see, they've been, they've been preached the message of salvation over and over again, but they said it's not relevant to us. But now they're in trouble. One of the stories I heard as a kid that has never left me is, is that sometimes when God is speaking to us, when God is speaking salvation to us, it feels a little like a man coming to you when you're at the lake and you're sitting on a pier, and you're nice and safe, and you're not in the water, but you're on the pier. But this man comes and says, I have a buoy to save you. I have a lifesaver. Let me save you. And you say, why do I need saving? I'm on the pier. doesn't seem relative. It doesn't seem important. But if you're in that lake, and you can't swim, and you're going down for the last time, and suddenly someone appears with a, a lifesaver, you begin to say, it's extremely relevant right now. And so here's where they are. They're in the water. They're in captivity. They're going down. They've lost so much. And they begin to cry out. And hear the words that God says to them. I'm going to save you. Soon. I don't know about you, but I don't like that answer too much. I want to hear, I'm going to save you now. But he says, I'm going to save you soon. Soon, I'm going to gather you back. Matter of fact, we know it took 70 years. But then he says something more. He says, this time of your captivity, this time of your exile, I'm going to do something with this that you yourselves cannot do. I'm not just going to save you because it's not enough for me to send my son just to save you. I'm going to save the, the Babylonians. I'm going to save your captors. I'm going to make you a light to the Gentiles. So not only am I going to save you soon, but I'm going to save more than you. And then he says, 
you're also going to be a light to the ends of the earth. Now, I don't always like it when God speaks like this. I want him to save me now. I want him, I want him to do something in the moment. But here's what this passage begins to open up to us, that even your trials, even your tribulations have a bigger purpose than you realize. That God has an agenda that's bigger than your dreams for yourself. And so we're crying, save me now, when we finally get our attention only through crisis, only when we're desperate, it seems. And yet, even though we have not been listening, he has a purpose and a destiny for us, even in the times we do not understand, that is bigger than we could imagine. So he speaks this over them, and then he says to them something really powerful. He tells them to sing. Sing for joy. Nothing has changed, friends. They're still captives. They're still slaves. And he says to them, sing for joy. Sing with the heavens. Sing with the earth. Exalt. Break forth into singing. And he says, for the Lord has comforted his people. Well, they're still in captivity. How is it that he's comforted his people? And he will have compassion on his afflicted. And so as he's speaking these words, you begin to see something happening. Zion says, Zion is the people of God, say to to their God, he says, Lord, you have forsaken me. You've forgotten me. And the Lord answers, can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands, Your walls are continually before me. So now the Lord answers them as they speak to him a very painful question. And the the painful question really is, Lord, what are you going to do for me now? And I I love this because you have to realize how, how much in pain they are at this moment. The temple, which was the symbol of his favor and his presence, is destroyed. It is no more. The land of their forefathers, the land that was promised to them, is no longer theirs. They're living as exiles in another land. And so they come to him with a painful question and say, you know, we are forsaken, yet you're saying you're comforting us. We are forgotten, yet you're saying you're going to save us. And as you, as you look at this, you have, to, you have to understand what's not said here. See, they don't say, we don't believe you. They just are saying to him, but what you're saying to us doesn't touch us. What you're saying to us doesn't seem relative to us. You're saying these beautiful things, but they're not really getting to the heart of our lives. I want you to understand something. You and I in this room can be totally in agreement with all of the word of God. We can be in agreement with the the truths of God and be utterly unaffected by them because we just assent to them. We, We don't disagree with them, but we haven't gotten to the place where we depend upon them for our very existence. For example, there are many people who say to me, I believe God loves me. Or they'll say, yeah, I believe that I have an identity in Christ. I believe all this stuff. But what what they're really saying is that truth is way down the list of the things that I give importance to. I don't treasure that. I don't pull it out when I'm in trouble. I don't ponder on that. 
It's there. I don't disagree with it. But it's not that relevant to me. Some theologians that I like wrote about it in this way. They said that the evidence in your life and in my life, both inside us and outside us, the evidence of how we see ourselves. For example, many of us hear the words that say, God loves me, but you know yourself and you look inside and say, how could God possibly love me with all my secrets and all my shame? Or we look at all the unanswered prayers that we've had in our lives, how we've asked God for this or to do that or open this door or make this a reality for me and it just doesn't seem like it happens. And so, yeah, we don't disagree that God loves me, but I don't really think it has that much relevance for me. That's what, the, that's what these who are answering and speaking back to God, that's, that's what they're asking. They're saying, we don't disagree with you, but we don't see how this is going to make a difference. What, what this passage is talking about and what I, I personally have found in my own life is there's always going to be evidence that this doesn't matter. But in order for it to truly become something you treasure, It becomes something through which you interpret all the events of your life. Then you have to get over the doubt. You have to get past it. And and you have to experience and be transformed by the love of God in such a way that you no longer simply assent to it, but you begin to connect everything that you need unconditionally to it. For example... um, acceptance, really knowing that you're not rejected, but that, that you're loved and that there's an unconditional aspect of the love that someone else has for you is one of the most foundational needs that you have. Let me tell you, you're never going to get that from anybody else but God. That idea and the, the, the reality that you and I, we long to have worth, to be important to somebody. But we want to be important even when we're not extraordinary. Well, only Christ can give you unconditional worth. Only He can say, you're worth my life. No one else can do that for you. And to experience that is to get a solid foundation at the very core and the essence of your being where even when life doesn't go the way you want it to go, you're you're unshaken because you say, my worth does not depend on this. And to be safe and to feel secure. To be free from fear. Whether you know it or not, it's one of your greatest longings. It's one of the greatest yearnings of your heart. And there's only one who can make you that secure, and that's Christ himself, because he gives you his security unconditionally. And those who have encountered his love in such a a devastating way say things like this, to be absent from my body is to be present with the Lord. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because they feel so safe, even death is not an enemy to be feared anymore. You see, if what you believe is not true, then what you feel will not be real. But if what you believe, how you think, is based in unshakable truth, then what you feel will eventually be healed. Now, why do I know that? Well, because of the way God answers in verse 15. Think through this with me. 
He says a powerful answer, powerful image. He says, can a nursing mother forget the baby at its breast? And it's so important that you understand this. This is God speaking with Isaiah. This is a major theological dialogue interrupted by skeptical, cynical people. And instead of smiting them and wiping them off of the map, instead of saying to them, just suck it up, get over it, instead, he answers their question. He allows the interruption. The truth is God loves honest questions, honest skeptics. Much more than religious people who hide their doubts and their fears and never get transparent with God. So he loves this, actually. And he, he takes time to answer this interruption. And he doesn't just make them feel better. He doesn't simply give them emotional support. He appeals with this powerful image of the nursing mother and baby to the mind. And the reason is this is that God wants you to have such solid knowledge, to have such true beliefs that everything that he's speaking to you drills down all the way to your affections. So that instead of just being something you assent to, it's something you've tested, you've tried it, it's true for you, you trust in it. You have more than just a passing knowledge of God you have an affection for him that's unshakable. He doesn't just want you to feel good one day. He wants you to be transformed every day by the truth that sets you free. See, God answers a question with thinking that gets down to their affections. I love what one writer wrote. He said, in other words, to know that God is like a nursing mother to you is something that can drill down from your thoughts and beliefs all the way to your heart and to your emotions. Why? Because it's in the image of the intimacy between the mother and the child that God feels towards you. See, in a way, if this becomes your revelation of God, everything that you're going through, you will see it through the eyes that my father is like a nursing mother and he will not forget me. Well, the answer is also brilliant and in these ways, is that it talks about the bond that the Father, the bond that God, the bond that the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit has with you is similar to this bond of a nursing mother. You know, never having been a nursing mother, I can't tell you this by experience, but it is said to be the strongest human bond that there is, and there's two very strong reasons, a physical bond and an emotional bond. The physical bond is that the more that a mother nurses, the more she has to nurse. It will become uncomfortable if she doesn't draw her child to her. And then the emotional bond of it is that there are these hormones that are released that just give bliss, that give bonding, that give intimacy and oneness to the mother and the child. But you have to understand this. It's an unconditional bond. Because the child is there to take and the mother is there to give. And the child demands 24-7 the attention of the mother. The giving is all on the mother. The taking all on the child. Do you not see how God says to you, you are dependent on me. You are, you are needy. You are in a position where I am the one who has something to give. You are the one who needs to receive. 
He looks upon you not as someone who has some performance you know, to satisfy or some merit to achieve. When the mother looks at her baby, all she thinks is he or she is hungry and I'm here to feed them. And in doing so, a physical and emotional bond will take place. Now, the English translation, for some reason, changes the Hebrew. In the English translation, it says, a mother may forget. But in the Hebrew, it actually says, a mother will forget. Maybe because it sounds too harsh, in a way. And you can think of how mothers who, are, who do forget their children are, are maybe, in a sense, two cases. The first is that there are bad mothers. Uh, we've been, in the last number of years, we've been having our, our daughter and our son-in-law have been in the foster system, and they are often have been given children from mothers who either uh, were pregnant with drugs in their system or pregnant with you know, some kind of abusive situation and who have no concern for their children, and so they are given over to the state in order to protect the child from his own mother. So there are, there are nursing mothers who do not care and who forget. But I think that what he's talking about here is something a little more ultimate. And it's not, it's not something that, as a mother, I, you, you like to think about, but every single mother that any of us has ever had is destructible. They do forget us. They leave us. 17 years ago, my mother passed away. My mother loved Christmas. Christmas was her favorite time. And for 17 years, though I have enjoyed my Christmases with my wife and I have enjoyed my Christmases with my church family or with my kids or whatever it is, it has never been the same since she's been gone. She abandoned me. She left. You see, that's what he's getting at here is that as good as your mother may be, she will not be with you forever. As wonderful as she may have nursed you, she will not be with you forever. And what God is saying, though she will leave you, I will not. Though she is destructible, my love for you is indestructible. As a matter of fact, he says, in comparison, my love to the mother's love, the mother's love is equal to almost nothing compared to how I love you. Now, are you tracking with me on this a little bit? It would be easy to say at this point, God, that's a brilliant argument. That's an awesome argument. But I'm still in captivity. The Babylons still have me enslaved. These are wonderful words that you're speaking to me, but it hasn't changed my situation whatsoever. And so what we see is that in verse 16, God takes it a step farther. Now, those of you who have children who have gotten older, you've noticed certain things about them, haven't you? How they start to think they know better than you. How they can actually say things that are extremely hurtful. For example, you as a parent might think that something they want to buy or somewhere they want to go or something they want to do might not be good for them. And so you say to them, no, you cannot buy that. No, you cannot do that. No, you must not do this and you have to do that or whatever it is. And that child that you nursed will look at you and say, I hate you. I don't love you. 
And you're sitting there going, oh my goodness. And what you want to say as a parent, you little twerp you. (laughs) Do you know how many sacrifices I make? Do you know how much hidden stuff that I do so that you have everything that you need? And you realize that every child thinks adults are just there to meet their needs anyway. And so you want to say to them, I have provided everything through sacrifice, through work, so that you have what you need, and I give you most of what you want. And here you say you hate me over something insignificant as a Toys R Us whatever, or going to this, or doing that. Do you understand what an ungrateful little twerp you are? And you never get to say that because it doesn't work anyway to say those things. But have you ever thought about how we are that way with God? He has done everything you need for life and godliness, but he doesn't let you have this, or this doesn't happen as quickly as you want it to happen, or this goes a different way than you want it to go, and you just you shake your fist and say, you never answer my prayers. And God says, you little twerp. <laughs> it's there in Hebrew. I'll show you later. Hmm. See, it's very possible that what we've realized is he knows our true needs and we don't. So here's what he speaks to his people. He says, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. Now notice this. He doesn't say I tattooed you. Okay, it could be that, that, you know, it could be that tattooing is painful. I don't know, but I'm not going to try it. But it could be the tattooing is painful, but what he's talking about is far more painful. Because when you engrave something on your hand, you take, an, you take a hammer and you take a chisel and there must be blood. You must go and penetrate the skin and you must raise the blood from the skin. And what the Father is saying about the Lord Jesus Christ to you about Christmas is that when you didn't even know that you needed it, he engraved you on his hands. Now, think about this with me. It was not unusual for a slave to have the master's name engraved. But it was very unusual for the master, I would say non-existent, for the master to engrave the slave on the hand. But you know what it's a picture of, right? Of the cross. That when the nails were going into Jesus' hand, it was your name engraved there. He went where you didn't have to go. He did it so that you would be forever engraved in the palms of his hands. I mean, when you realize that his actions are even more powerful than his words, then you realize that his promises are worth everything to you. See, if he says, I've comforted you, he's comforting you. If he said, I will save you, then he's really saving you. And if he says he's using you not just to save you and your family, but all the families of the earth, then he's doing it, and he's doing more than you could ask, think, or imagine, even when you don't understand it. And the final argument are the nail-scarred hands. It was so interesting, there was one disciple who kept saying to 
to the other disciples, you guys saw Jesus. I don't really believe he's alive. I'm not going to believe until I see the nails in his hands and the nails in his feet, until I see the scars on his side, I will not believe. When he saw Jesus, Jesus said, look, examine. Examine it. And Thomas couldn't even do it. He couldn't look at it because he was so ashamed of his unbelief. I think if he looked, he'd have seen his name. He'd have seen that it was engraved. God says, even if your mother forgets you, I'll never forget you. And then he says, this last part, he says, I I even am watching over your walls. And the the idea in the theology here, in the, the Hebrew that's there, is you as a person, the boundaries of personhood. I'm... I'm considering your life. I'm considering your personhood. Who you are matters to me. I've engraved you in my hands, but I also am not letting anything in the boundaries that won't lead you to the destiny that I have for you. See, many of us, what we do is we don't listen. We don't treasure. We want salvation now, not eventually, not ultimately. But also, we don't realize that the destiny that he has for you is better than the dream you have for yourself. And many of us make the mistake of wasting our sorrows. In this world, you will have trouble, but the wise thing is to figure out, in the midst of the trouble, how can I not waste this? How can I advance? How can I go forward? Well, the only way you can is if it starts with the belief He never forgets me. He's like a nursing mother. And then the belief becomes an affection. I have a bond with him. He with me. He longs for intimacy with me like a mother longs for intimacy with her child. He'll never forget me. Even when it feels like I'm forsaken, I am not. How do I know that? Well, because the nail scars. Because he was abandoned, so I never have to be abandoned. He was rejected, so I never have to be rejected. He defeated my enemies for me. And in him, I have life, and I'm more than a conqueror. Can you receive afresh this tender image of God? the nursing mother, and yet unable, never able to be destroyed, for he'll never forget you. I like to do a thing in our our candlelight service where we turn all the lights down and we just start passing the light around to each other. That in this darkness and trouble of this world, that Jesus has come to be the light to the Gentiles and the glory of his people, Israel. So I'm going to ask, do we have somebody over there that can cut the lights for us? I love it when it's dark and then we put the light from the candles. Plus, we all look prettier that way. (laughs) All right. Will you stand with me? I'd rather you have fire standing.
and we'll just take it and pass it. Oops, yours does not want to work. There we go.
be just mere assent that or you just say well I don't disagree with this but that you let it go from belief and thought drill down deep into your affections you begin to realize that this is the treasured truth this is the pondered truth that interprets all of reality for you that the one who whether it's he's allowing something to happen or he's bringing something your way Either way, he's like a nursing mother to you. He'll never forget you. And he knows how to save you. He knows how to use your salvation to bring others to do more with your life than you ever could do if you just do it yourself. Would you this Christmas make that step, that commitment, that Christ will be the affection of your heart. That he who engraved your name on his hand with nails on a tree, nails on a hill called Calvary, that you will engrave him on your heart. If you've never done that before, I invite you just to pray this prayer. I, I like it when our whole church prays it, so you're not praying it alone, but... If you've never made that kind of commitment before and you want to go beyond just, okay, I agree with this, but you want to go, I want this to be the affection of my heart. Would you pray this? And I'll ask the others who have prayed this before and who know that this is a prayer that opens a door to a whole new spiritual life. 
I'll ask you to pray with me as we pray this together. Will you pray this out loud with me? Lord Jesus, I receive you and the intimacy that you offer me. You will never forsake me. You will never forget me. You have engraved my name in the palms of your hands. I receive you as my Savior, as my Lord, as my risen King. This is the kind of a tricky part. I want you to say this. It's my words, but you can make them your own. Only your heart can do this, but we'll say it together. I commit myself to you as my Lord, my leader, my king, my acceptance, my worth, my security. I turn from all the other places where I've tried to be safe, where I've tried to be accepted, where I've tried to get worth. And I make you my treasure. You are ultimate to me. I repent of all the things that I've made ultimate that are not ultimate. Now again, these are words that I've asked you to say with me, but there's this powerful thing called faith. And even if you're using my words, but they become your heart, your affection, and this, this wonderful thing that, that God has done called He did all the work, by faith you receive it, and you are transformed by His power and His presence. Right now, if You've asked Jesus to be your Savior. He's doing more than just keeping you from hell. He's coming into your heart and lavishing the love that the Father has for you. He's coming into your heart and setting it apart and sanctifying it and making it holy like never before. Because when you open the door, He comes in like gangbusters. Would you just receive all of the joy that He has for you right now? and the peace. I just hear the Lord saying the word over you if you'll receive it. I hear the word fullness. <laughs> Would you just say that word out loud with me? Fullness. fullness. Say it one more time. Fullness. fullness. Receive His fullness. In Jesus' name. And as we close our, our Christmas Eve service, I love how God loves to bless. Even he taught his priest how to bless the people. And he said, say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. <laughs> Receive it. The favor of the Lord, the blessing of the Lord, the fullness of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Merry Christmas, everyone. God bless you all. You probably have to blow out the candles at some point. Hug a few people on your way out. Have a great Christmas.